Howdy, kids. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, Toddzilla X-Pod. Hi there. I'm your friendly host, Todd. This is going to be episode number 121. It's going to be released August 2nd of 2023, recorded, I think, on the 31st. Well, it's the continuation of the episode immediately preceding this one. And it picks up right where the other one left off, talking about the authoritarian mind. and explores how that might just be part of who we are and also how it might be the death knell, the inevitable death knell of democracy. Yeah, cheerful stuff. <laughs> First, I want to warn you, without the context of the previous episode, this may sound a little incongruous uh, as it starts out, but towards the end, hopefully, <laughs> I brought it all together, particularly the last 10 or 15 minutes. I particularly would like you to listen to that if you're uh, listening to this podcast. Hope you like it. Thanks for clicking in. focus of this podcast today has been authoritarianism, the authoritarian mind, censorship. We're going to continue the theme here. You ever hear of the author Daniel Borston? I think his name is Borston. Daniel? Is that right? Daniel Borston? I don't have the book in here. But, uh, yeah. He's a good one. Going to feature him quite a bit uh, in this uh, section, along with some other people. I think this is from his book, The Americans, Daniel Borston's. I'm going to start out with a quote here talking about uh, the suppression of errors. What they may call disinformation these days, maybe they, they call it dissent. But suppressing dissenting viewpoints even wrongful ones. What actually distinguished that mother colony, us, in the great age of New England Puritanism was its refusal, for reasons of its own, to develop a theory of toleration. In mid-17th century England, we note, a growing fear that attempts to suppress error would inevitably suppress truth. That was the mentality that they had. And he says, I know there is but one truth, wrote the author of one of the many English pamphlets on liberty of conscience in 1645. Quote continues on, but this truth cannot be so easily brought forth without this liberty and a general restraint, though intended but for errors, yet through the unskillfulness of men may fall upon the truth. And better many errors of some kind be suffered then one useful truth be obstructed or destroyed. That's the end of that quote. Borston continues on by saying, in contrast, and this is, yeah, in contrast is right. Continues on to say, the impregnable view, spit it out, Todd, of New England Puritanism was expressed in the words of John Cotton. This is some old writing here, so forgive me if I stumble over it. The apostle directeth. Talking about John Cotton here. This is from John Cotton one of the Puritans, and giveth the reason that in fundamental and principal points of doctrine or worship, the word of God is so clear that he cannot but be convinced in conscience of the dangerous error of his way after once or twice being admonished. And then if he persists, following his reason and his own conscience, against the Puritanical viewpoint, the word of God, if he persists, is not out of conscience, 
This is the best part. If he persists in following his own gut, right? It's not out of his conscience, but against his conscience, <laughs> as the apostle says, he is subverted and sins. He has subverted, <laughs> he is subverted and sins, being condemned of himself, that is, of his own conscience. So following your conscience, you're sinning against your conscience. That's exactly what he's saying here. So that if such a man, after such admonitions, shall still persist in the error of his way of following his God, his own reason, and therefore be punished, he is not persecuted, punished, for cause of conscience. He's not being punished because of his conscience for following his conscience, but in the twisted mind of the Puritans, but for sinning against his own conscience. So the gut feeling, your own reason, your own conscience, apparently is the devil's work, and you're somehow... <clears throat> That's Puritanism for you. Now, Borston continues on. He sums it up by saying, The leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony enjoyed the luxury, which was no longer feasible in 17th century England, of a pure and simple orthodoxy. There was no diversity. It was an echo chamber. It was a cult. It was a cult compound, really. Yeah, Puritanism is a pure and simple story. Anything critical, questioning, uh, challenging the ironclad doctrine uh, was subversion and sin. That's Puritanism. Sound familiar? Obviously, that John Cotton quote could be applied right here in the 21st century. There is still Puritanical DNA coursing through the American blood. It's very peculiar how Puritanical uh, we still are. Totalitarian, authoritarian, conform or be cast out, I guess, as Rush said. How does that puritanical mind jive with democracy? How does the attempt to silence dissenting voices, even if you, even if you think it's out of error, right? How does that relate to the puritanical mindset? And how does that apply to democracy? If you have a puritanical mindset, you are intolerant of any differing viewpoint. The congregation does not have a right to disagree with you and remain in good standing with the flock, right? Well, that's not how a democracy is supposed to work. I've got another, I've got a couple more of Borston's books. And another one of my favorites is called The Exploring Spirit. It's excellent, considering my background and how I feel about uh, how exploration is the best of us. That's where we come out. That's where we shine, is when we're exploring branching out, right? Here's a quote from that book. I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson here. It says, The special meaning which the Americans would attach to the word or the phrase the people. This particular overtone Thomas Jefferson gave eloquent and prophetic expression to. Now, Borston is quoting Jefferson here. He says, We may consider each generation as a distinct nation with a right by the will of its majority to bind themselves but none to bind the succeeding generation. Can't do that any more than the inhabitants of another country. This is Jefferson's coat that I've mentioned before. Paraphrase it again. Each generation Jefferson saw as a distinct nation with a right by the will of its majority to bind themselves, yeah, but not to bind succeeding generations. According to Jefferson, one generation couldn't do that to a future generations any more than they'd be rightfully entitled to do that to another country. It's a really interesting way to look at it, right? Are we the same nation as we were 50 years ago, 150 years ago? Completely new population, right? 
Are we the same nation? Don't we have the right to decide how we want to live today and not be bound to the tyranny of our forefathers? It's problematic for conservatives. Especially the ones who worship the founding fathers, the Constitution, all that stuff. Not the Constitution, because they put in the Constitution ways to amend it. They gave us the means as, you know, a particular generation, a time in history, people living in a time in history, they gave us the means to amend the Constitution. Amendments. Jefferson thought that every succeeding generation had the right to have that conversation. Do we still agree with us? Is this how we still want to live or do we want to change some of this? See, I support the Second Amendment. And it's a perfect, perfect example here. I support it because it's there, right? For a few other reasons. But I also support the anti-gun nuts' right to change it. If they can get, if they can go through the proper channels and they can get, what is it? You need two-thirds of the states to ratify a constitutional amendment, basically outlawing the Second Amendment, right? Pretty much what you have to do. It's what we did with Prohibition 100 years ago, right? There's an avenue to do that. It's impossible. I mean, it's technically it's possible, but their thoughts on the matter, how they see this issue, doesn't resonate with nearly enough people. There are too many people who like their guns. And if they don't like their guns, they want to be able to go out and buy one. They want to be able to arm themselves if they see fit. I think George Floyd riots, I think that helped the anti-gun cause. This division going at each other's throats. All this chatter and you hear about civil war. Are we on the brink of a civil war? Do you really think that's helping <laughs> the abolished guns movement? What I have a problem with is everything that's being done on the left to circumvent that process. Attacking ammunition, trying to outlaw guns without outlawing guns. There's a process, protocol. You could do it, but you can't do it because not enough fucking people agree with you. But you want to inflict that on them anyway. That's what I have a problem with. Jefferson spelled out the consequences of this. No society can make a perpetual constitution or even perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Life belongs to the living. They may manage it and what proceeds from it as they please. They are masters, too, of their own persons and consequently may govern them as they please. The constitution and the laws of their predecessors are extinguished then in their natural course with those whose will gave them being. The Constitution and the laws of their predecessors die with the people who made them. This is Jefferson. If it's enforced longer than that, it's an act of force and not of right. In Jefferson's view, each generation was entitled to have a referendum. Pretty much everything. That's why it was written into the Constitution. You can change it. It is problematic for conservatives, for a lot of them. Saying that each generation has the right to live and govern themselves as they see fit. And what if there's no majority? What if the nation's evenly split? Which is basically the situation we're in right now, right? Pretty <laughs> evenly split. Fragmented. So in an evenly split nation, should the revolutionaries, the insurgents, rather than the natives be the ones to metaphorically sail to the new world? I mean, the natives heard this a million times, right? Well, the natives, they have a right to live and govern as they see fit, too. I've used this uh, analogy before, where these revolutionaries, the ones who are trying to remake society in their own God's image, 
They're colonists. They're trying to colonize an established country. You talk about the colonizers all the time. You hear a lot of talk about decolonize. Well, what the fuck is this? Everything's pretty well established here. You're trying to revolutionize, ideologically colonize a place that's already settled. People that live here have a right to live. They have a right to govern themselves as they are. You want to do it differently. If you have different ideas, do it somewhere else. Honduras is nice. Try your shit in Tegucigalpa. Take your pronouns down there and see how that works out for you. Yeah, in my mind, it's up to the revolutionaries to break ground on their own utopia rather than act as parasites uh, attacking an already established host. Jim Jones, that's what you do. Go to Guyana. Jungle's nice. I've been to the jungle. Now, when you're talking about ideological insurgencies, colonization, what about the right or the inability, I guess, maybe in this case, of a national body to defend itself from a radical and intoxicated minority? How can it defend itself? How aggressively should it defend itself from a radical and intoxicated, morally drunk, self-righteous minority? And what's the priority here? Protected freedoms? Democratic institutions? Or the national principles themselves. Also, if protecting individual liberty is the stated goal, can a nation curtail those liberties in its self-defense, even against authoritarian invaders? If you've got Pol Pot rolling up on you, does the nation, in principle, have the right to curtail civil liberties to protect freedom? Does it maintain its idealistic legitimacy and the consent of the governed? Let me give you a little Walter Lippmann here. I forget what book this is from, but uh, he asks this question. Must people acquiesce in the overthrow of a democracy if the dictator can obtain the support of a majority of voters? Now, I'll reread that. Must people acquiesce in the overthrow of a democracy if the dictator can obtain the support of the majority of voters? The key word here, the key word here is not majority. The key word Voters. How many people vote? Let's mention Pol Pot here a minute ago. So let's 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 play a little game here. Imagine Pol Pot running as a Democrat one year. He completely, totally plans to turn this into a dictatorship. He not hiding his intentions at all. But he manages to get the forty three percent to win an election. Must the country acquiesce to that? Tricky question, isn't it? Now, most people tend to take the attitude that if people don't vote, they become abstract non-entities, basically non-citizens who are stripped of their status as meaningful members of a society. Sadly for you, partisans, they don't just conveniently vanish. It's because you don't vote doesn't mean you turn into a ghost. These non-participants, they still fancy themselves as the people. And they are. Just the same as the electorally vanquished refuse to just fall off the face of the earth. They don't disband the political parties. It's because you lose an election. Just because you don't vote, you don't participate, doesn't mean you're not a part of the, the people. So if you're getting 42% of an election and you happen to win, do these people, are they required? Must a country acquiesce? Must a people acquiesce to the overthrow of a democracy simply because... The dictator wins an election. According to Mr. Lippmann, free institutions are not the property of any majority. They do not confer upon 
majorities unlimited powers. The rights of the majority are limited rights. They are limited not only by constitutional guarantees, but by the moral principle implied in those guarantees. Principle that <clears throat> is that uh, men may not use the facilities of liberty to impair liberties. You can't invoke a liberty. You can't invoke a right to destroy a right. Can democracy defend itself? Is this democracy's Achilles heel? Is this the democratic time bomb? Does this correspond to utopia's inevitable authoritarianism? Is it always going to be the case that tyrannical human nature always sabotages democracy? I talked a lot in the last podcast about inherent deceit and self-deception. I think <laughs> wanting to control other people close behind that. That's why we're so fucking deceptive. We can't force people to do what we want, so we manipulate them. It's still a, ty it's still a tyranny. A need to control other people, to bend them to our will. What deceit's about, right? Getting what we want from people. Getting people to do what we want. It's about control. Deceit, self-deception, and tyranny, man. Right there. I feel a 20-minute tangent that I could go on here. I'm going to my voice won't handle that. <laughs> Is authoritarianism the real natural state of a human-conceived and built society? People built it. Is authoritarianism the real natural state of society? Was the idea of a democracy, the wisdom of the herd, the people, was that an exercise in fantasy fiction? Idea conceived by people deluded by divine human arrogance. A severe lack of self-awareness sold to those <laughs> who were eager to hear all about their own divine destiny. How close they were to God. Or was it a matter of better to be yoked by my neighbor than yoked by my king? It's a blasphemous question, right? The authoritarian mind. Authoritarian human nature. <laughs> Started this segment talking about uh, freedom of thought, really. Allowing, you know, dissenting opinions, wrong opinions, allowing people uh, to contribute to conversations, even though they're wrong, so as to not suppress somebody who might be right. Well, idea behind the First Amendment, I would assume. One of them. But if you support free thought, if you really do, if you ask yourself, do you support people's right to think independently, to disagree with doctrine, dogma, orthodoxy. Do you support that? Now, most, most Americans, most people that I know, not all of them, yeah. most of them are going to say, yeah, that's what America's about, right? Well, if you support free thought and people's right to be intellectually autonomous and think what they think, believe what they think, if you support that, then people have a right, brace yourself, to be racist. They have a right to be sexist. Whatever else. Unless you don't really support free thought and you're puritanical. Think about that. Because if these people do not have the right to believe, to think differently than you do, regardless of how right you think you are, if these people do not have a right to challenge that, to think against it, to think another way, to disagree, 
You don't support free thought. You are puritanical. You are a theocrat, a totalitarian. If you're trying to take away people's rights to think what they think, believe what they think, you are John Cotton. So what does that mean? If that's true, if you still, okay, well, no, I do believe in free thought. People do technically, I guess, have a right to be racist. What does that mean? If you want to change the world, what does that mean? If you, if you, if you take that attitude and you take away the totalitarianism, the Puritanism, and people do have a right to be racist, sexist, whatever else, but yet you still want to change the world. They want to save it. What does that mean? That means you have to convince people. <gasps> you have to have conversations and interactions and dialogues, debates, whatever. But you've got to be able to change their mind if you really, really want to achieve Star Trek. You got to win hearts and minds. Uh, good luck with that agitprop. Good luck with that division. Good luck with identity politics. Telling people that just because they're white, they're racist oppressors, that's going to help you a lot. It goes back to what I was talking about back in the 1960s. You had these, these nut jobs who were giving shelter to things that probably were Pretty unsavory. So by telling people they're not allowed to question racial doctrine, to think there's a difference between men and women, that boys have penises and girls have vaginas, oh, you're not allowed to think what? By telling them they're not allowed to do any of that, you're basically turning them against your cause and giving aid and comfort to the batshit extremists on the other side. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion. Some of the shit coming from the left is some of the least inclusionary stuff I've ever heard. You're not allowed to dissent. You can't go into the DEI meeting and dissent. Disagree. I question you'll be able to keep your job if you went in there and vehemently denied the racial doctrine saying whiteness is evil and that just because you were born white, you're an oppressor, you're a racist, automatically. And good luck disagreeing with the fact that only, black, only white people can be racist. Nobody else can be racist, just white people. If you don't agree with that, you take that attitude, take that argument into your DEI meeting, you're still going to have a job. You'll be written up. You're going to fail your re-education course. You're going to win hearts and minds. You're going to win anything. And so this earlier, likability matters. People have to like you. They don't have to love you. They have to respect you. They can't hate you. Agitation propaganda, agitprop. Agitation in and of itself generates hatred. Revolutionary propaganda. It's the propaganda of insurgency. It's the propaganda of hate and division. It's the propaganda of destabilization. What's more destabilizing than fragmenting and cleaving off an entire population, a diverse population, probably the most diverse population of the planet? What's more destabilizing than cleaving them off and separating them into identity tribes? 
destabilization. You'll hear more on this at some point, not today. Agitation propaganda and totalitarianism are conjoined twins. It's agitation, propaganda, the propaganda of hate, the propaganda of division makes the opposing sides irreconcilable. That means the only way you can win is to suppress the other side, to force the other side to conform. You think you're moving closer to winning any hearts and minds these days? You sensing it happen? You sense the tide turning? That's highly doubtful. So that means, it goes back to something I've asked a hundred times, well, like the day of your righteous battle, you win the righteous battle when the war is won. <laughs> what do you do with the other side? What do you expect the other side to do? Okay, you were right. You won. Would you? If wokeism, say it was made illegal tomorrow, and maybe next year, say Trump wins the election, just pretend here. I don't want him to win either, but just pretend Trump wins the election and by some, I don't know, legislative magic. Maybe he signs an executive order outlawing wokeism, <laughs> outlawing all this DEI shit, all the gender crap, all the social division stuff, wedge issues, outlaws them. They're no longer allowed. They're illegal. It somehow <laughs> becomes law. You're just going to roll over? Okay, you won. Of course you're not. Now, how can you expect somebody else to do How can you expect millions, tens of hundreds of millions of other people? At least a hundred. Maybe more. How can you expect those people to do what you yourself won't do? Do you imagine that, that they don't think they're as right as you do? Do you think that they don't believe in their, their, their principles and their values as much as you do? Do you think you're that much more motivated and inspired and pure? There's some gymnastics for him. Harold Laswell. You ever hear that name? I think, his name. I think his first name's Harold. I have come across his stuff, his name, numerous times. First read about him, uh, first heard about him, I guess, in uh, the Alul book. Uh, he's an older, yeah, 100 years ago. Another one of these guys. But one of the original uh, uh, propaganda people that uh, started to investigate what propaganda was. You know, research it a little bit. This is his... Uh, Line on the authoritarian mind. Harold Laswell. He says, in some measure, the present occupation with propaganda is due to the outright pacifists. There's a widespread belief that fighting is due to ill will and that if war is to cease, there must be a moratorium on hate. This is new. <laughs> a moratorium on hate. Jesus, what do you think? Can propaganda furnish a weapon of direct attack upon the psychology of nations, Laswell asks, and expose the ways and means of sowing confidence where mistrust reckles? rankles? <laughs> so can propaganda manipulate psychology in a positive way, sowing confidence where mistrust rankles between nations? Continuing on, Laswell goes to the root says this whole discussion about the ways and means of controlling public opinion testifies to the collapse of the traditional species of democratic romanticism 
and to the rise of a dictatorial habit of mind. hundred years ago. As long as it's the Democrats, people who believe in democracy, as long as the Democrats were in opposition, they were free to belabor the fact of an infallible, though almighty king, with the fantasy of an all-wise public. I feel they were free to rail against the king, right? Instead, fantasizing about this all-wise public. Enthrone the public and dethrone the king. Pass the scepter to the wise. Laswell says that familiarity with the ruling public has bred contempt. Modern reflections upon democracy boil down to the proposition, more or less contritely expressed, <laughs> that the Democrats, people who believe in democracy, not the party, were deceiving themselves. The public has not reigned with restraint. The good life is not in the mighty rushing wind of public sentiment. It is no organic secretion of the horde. Oh, I really want to use that line. It is no organic secretion of the horde, but the tedious achievement of the few. The lover of the good life no longer consults Sir Oracle. He pulls the strings of Punch and Judy. Thus argues the despondent Democrat. Let us, therefore, reason together, brethren, he sighs, and find the good. And when we have found it, let us find out how to make up the public mind to accept it. Inform, cajole, bamboozle, and seduce in the name of the public good. Preserve the majority convention, but dictate to the majority. Laswell, L-A-S-S-W-E-L-L, hundred years ago. Preserve the majority convention, but dictate to the majority. This, I believe, I don't know this for sure, can't prove it. Maybe it's in that, I haven't read the entire book, maybe it's in there. But this sounds like a direct retort to Edward Bernays, because that stuff is exactly what Edward Bernays was saying. The people are idiots. People are morons. We have to use the tools of propaganda in order to put the right ideas in front of people. We have to manufacture consent for the right ideas. The right ideas of the enlightened few. Now, sure, the mechanisms are in place. What did he say? Preserve the majority convention, right? Voting and all that. But make sure the people are thinking right thought. Yeah, he's getting into the gatekeepers here. 100 years ago. Edward Bernays, his views on the public and uh, his vision, Bernays' vision for the benevolent propagandists. People who have the Talk about utopian, my God. And we're going to have a committee of a few people who, who, who are all wise and all knowing and have everybody's interest at heart. And then we're going to take these ideas and we're going to propagate them. Going to spread it like seeds of goodness to the public. Have we not gotten there? Sounds like a... No. I don't know what the fuck it sounds like. Nothing good. So what about the dissenters? What about the people who disagree? I mean, this sounds an awful lot like uh, orthodoxy, doctrine. It sounds an awful lot like Soviet doctrine, right? Telling the people what to think, what they should think, what they must think. Dictate to the majority. It's right there. Preserve the illusion of a majority convention, I guess. I don't know. Pre uh, preserve, I guess, the, the infrastructure, but make sure that they're voting the right way. Dictate to the majority. A dictatorial habit of mind. 
Are we not awash in that? Are we not wallowing, drowning in it right now, the dictatorial habit of mind? People are not allowed to have their own thoughts of dissent. Think for themselves, even within the two cult camps. I know this happens on the right as well as the left. I'm not getting letting these folks off the hook either. <laughs> Justin Amash, a Republican, dissented against the holy orange warrior and had to be excised out of the, out of the party. There was no room for anti-Trump dissent. So, no, you don't have a pass here. And we'll find common quarter when we're talking about woke flakes, but this exists on the right as well. It exists everywhere, doesn't it? Everywhere. The dictatorial habit of mind, intellectual puritanism, social puritanism. Now, popping my mic here. Everywhere you look, extremist and theocratic tests are easily administered. You don't need a brain-poking swab here. All you have to do is ask a simple question. Am I allowed not to believe the scripture or will I be punished for heresy? Label an apostate if I speak out against it. Are you allowed not to believe? Or will you be ostracized? Will you be canceled? Will you be deplatformed? If you go into your DEI meeting, will you be fired? Will you be written up? Punished. Admonished. Are you allowed not to believe what's been dictated to you? We have been here before. What about those who crossed uh, Joseph McCarthy? Before Murrow in the Senate's, uh, have you no decency? Remember that moment? Canceling someone was once called blacklisting. What was good for the 1950s anti-communist goose? Clearly good for 2023's woke gander, isn't it? Blacklisting. Canceling. You shan't work. The direction from which it attacks doesn't matter. This dictatorial habit of mind, a theocracy. What we're dealing with is a culture-wide affinity for self-righteous totalitarianism. That's the enemy. Totalitarianism, regardless of the party label. Puritanism. Totalitarianism is an ideological theocracy. Political Puritanism. Totalitarianism, authoritarianism, not always interchangeable. But semantics aside, it doesn't matter. Both are tyrannical, dictatorial, literally. The road to any utopia, always stalked by fanatics and inevitably leads to authoritarianism. My words. In short, where collectivist unanimity demands compliance, dissenters are saboteurs. And once labeled saboteurs, they must be purged lest the non-belief virus spreads and destroys the entire herd. It's a historically consistent theme. It's the same with any cult. See, from Lenin to Stalin to Hitler to Mao to Castro to North Korea's little inbred kings. Jim Jones. Castro. Did I mention Castro? Yeah, Castro. Che, che Guevara. He went from motorcycle diaries to... <laughs> 
involving people for improper opinions. Sabotage. It's always the case because that's how it's got to be. It must be. From the terror in France to gulags, gas chambers, chase firing squads, and now cancellation. (laughs) We're not shooting each other yet. It's the metaphorical and sometimes real guillotine dangling over the non-believer's neck, over the blasphemer's neck. Keeps people quiet and quietly in line. Unanimity demands compliance. Totalitarianism demands compliance. Saboteurs will not be tolerated. Intellectual apostates will be burnt. Do you have the right not to believe something? Do you have the right not to believe? If the answer is no, you need to question where you are and what you're doing. There's nothing more anti-American than that. Intellectual autonomy ought to be written in stone somewhere. We have freedom of religion here. But apparently we don't have the freedom of political religion. Or we're losing it quite quickly. These threats are especially effective when it's the marginalized majority. Think about that. Think about that phrase for a second. When the marginalized majority (laughs) are the ones cowering in the shadow, in the shadow of a loud and well-organized insurgent minority. I keep thinking of these stupid memes that I keep seeing, these anarchists and these, uh, always from the left. They're talking about how the man's keeping you down. As soon as you stand up, then the the man with the whip's going to cower. He's going to run scarred. This applies to <laughs> the cowering majority of this country that doesn't believe in this DEI bullshit. It is not the majority of the country that submits to this shit. The silent majority of this country doesn't believe that just simply because you were born white, you're suffering from evil whiteness. You're an evil whiteness purveyor who's a racist oppressor. They don't believe there are 43 different genders. They know that gender dysmorphia is an actual disorder. It was called a disorder up until about 10 years ago. They wanted to get rid of the word disorder because it stigmatized it. So... The majority of the country doesn't believe that. But they're cowering in fear. Less so than they were a couple of years ago. I see indications this is shit's people are getting pissed off. There's a backlash coming. I see more indications of it now than ever. But beware. Beware of the backlash. You're not winning hearts and minds here. You've got people on their heels. You've had people on their heels for a little while, but they're not going to stay there. And this illusion that you're winning the culture war is going to end pretty fast when people finally start to push back. When the majority gets off the wall or gets out of the ditch, you're going to see the damage done. All the progress that was made, you're going to roll that back. They're going to want to spite you. They're going to change their opinions. They're going to change what they think. They're not going to see minorities or anybody else. They're going to see you. They're going to hear what you said about them. They're going to remember how you said, you can't be racist. You can't this. You can't that. And they're just going to hold my beer. The boomerang. 
when it comes flying, it's going to hurt. And not just you, the people you pretend to advocate for. Human nature is a hell of a thing. And regardless of any cultural eugenics program, it doesn't change overnight because you will it to be. You've taken the wrong track. Trying to force people to acquiesce to your... Oh, there it is. To acquiesce to your dictatorial decree. There's a piece here on courage, too. I didn't even get through everything. This was a rough one. So lest you think the uh, anti-woke stuff went away. There you go. Do you have the right not to believe? A great question. And when you don't have the right not to believe, should be a huge, huge, huge red flag. You're not living in the country you think you're living in or should be living in anymore. The insurgents have gotten a foothold. Puritanical and dictatorial habit of mind starting to take root. It's infected the institutions. At some point, you're going to have to get off the wall and push back. When is up to you. <laughs> but you've got the numbers. You've got the national narrative, the national myth, the national set of principles. It says all men are created equal, not that all men shall be treated equitably. You have common sense. You know men do not give birth. Did you notice? I did. My voice got better here at the end. What the entire fuck? See, it feels pretty goddamn normal right now. I think it's just weak. What do you think? Tanzillax at gmail.com if you'd like to send me a love letter. Especially you, Woke Flake. Love to hear it. Tanzillax over at Gmail. Tanzillax, I think it's the uh, YouTube channel as well. I have a Discord channel out there, a server out there now. Tanzillax over there. I don't know how to add people. I have no idea how to use that Discord thing. Gonna try to figure it out though this week. So I'd like to have some, some more shit over there. I want to move stuff away from Facebook eventually, sooner than later. No Twitter channel, Facebook page is still up there. Escaping the Cave, if you want to check out the page, that's fine. Anything else? Oh, I'm missing something. What did I forget? God damn it. I don't know. I'm going to try to do these things more often, but I've said that so many times, nobody believes me. But I'm going to try. Talk to you next time. So long. <laughs>